So Nikisa, we're going to talk about one of the most sustainable companies on the planet. And I think the answer of who it is is going to surprise you. Looking forward to it, Mike. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Disruptive Innovation Podcast, the place where we keep you informed about emerging technologies, innovation, and the global trends that are changing the world of business. I'm your host, Nikisa Mayoza, and with me always, Mike Grandinetti. We're so happy to be here today. A lot to cover, so let's get into it. Today, we're going to be talking about an, a company that's most associated with a rich history of innovation. If you've seen the movie based on the iconic Steve Prefontaine, American runner, then you know I'm talking about Nike and their efforts around sustainable innovation aimed at lowering environmental impact in the fashion industry uh, is driving how they rethink their products. So it's not just shoes, Mike. Uh, It's yarn, basketball courts. These are a few examples of the products that Nike is creating by transforming plastic bottles, manufacturing scraps, and used products into new materials. Uh, I think the sustainability report they put out this year, 75% of Nike shoes and apparel now contain some recycled materials. That's pretty incredible. So, Mike, I know you recently attended the R&D Summit uh, here in Boston and heard our next guest close uh, talk at this blockbuster event. So in studio today, we have the pleasure of speaking to a Nike legend, Sean McDowell. Hello, Sean. Hey, thanks for having me here. Welcome, welcome. Uh, Sean McDowell is an award-winning product designer and innovator focused on elegant solutions for complex problems. 22 years at Nike, over 50 patents. Uh, but for the shoe junkies out there, uh, I was sitting with the man who designed the Max Plus One, the Pegasus, the Tailwind, Kukuni, which is f- featured in the Smithsonian. I could go on and on about the number of shoes that he's designed. Uh, really a, a huge pleasure to have a Nike legend in here. So, uh, Mike, let's get into it. Yeah. And so, listen, it's a it's an honor, Sean, to have you with us. I had the privilege of listening to Sean give the very last talk of the day at the R&D Innovation Summit a couple of weeks ago here in Boston. And I was incredibly inspired by what I had heard. And so one of the things I do for fun, I'm the uh, uh, managing director of Open Audio Boston. And, and not that long ago, maybe a year ago, we had a hackathon. And, and the mission was to help Nike do a better job of figuring out how to dispose of all of the different components of its shoes. Because let's face it, you know, uh, athletic shoes wind up getting discarded and wind up uh, taking up a lot of landfill. But I had no idea just how committed Nike was to sustainability. And and as Sean described it, um, I think, you know, I was truly blown away. So we're going to dig in. So as we as we kick this off, what I want to say is, you know, we've always known Nike as a bleeding edge innovator. Certainly as a professor of marketing, I teach a Nike case. And the Nike case is how Nike has been at the forefront of everything when it comes to social and digital marketing. They were the first major brand to allocate a significant amount of their budget to digital away from print and online. Mm -hmm. And maybe one of the greatest accolades you can pay Nike is when Steve Jobs came back to Apple after 12 years in exile at Next. And he was beginning to think through what has become this incredibly iconic Think Different campaign which featured everyone from Muhammad Ali to uh, Rosa Parks to Gandhi. As he was briefing the troops, he paid great homage to Nike and said, this is the kind of advertising campaign that we want to replicate. Mm -hmm. It's not about the product. It's not about the capability. Nike celebrates athletes and athletic performance. And so this is a company that has been a dominant player in the world of sports and fitness forever. And Sean, you sort of knew 
as young as in sixth grade that this is kind of what you wanted to do, design shoes for Nike. So please share with us. Tell us that story. That story. No, that's right. Yeah. I, I grew up in Ithaca, New York, a very quiet town. And I grew up a runner. My dad was a marathon runner and he got me addicted at a very early age. I got a pair of Pegasus shoes in sixth grade, and it was designed by Tinker Hatfield, who's world famous. He's done a lot of Michael Jordan's shoes. And I got this little pamphlet and had design sketches that he had done in there, and like something clicked for me. It just felt perfect. It felt exactly like what I wanted to do. So I got a blank piece of paper, and I started copying exactly what I saw. I wound up building a whole collection of shoes and changing the logo a little bit. And it wound up being a, a product that I called the Ultra. And all <laughs> of them were named after different birds. So we had the Falcon, we had the Eagle, we had the, yeah, yep, a whole collection. And so the Doodle Book became the, the was that the, is that your portfolio piece? You walked in and said, I, I'm, I'm here, Nike, take a look at my doodles. You're exactly right. Like I, I, I worked at New Balance before I worked at Nike uh -huh. and I had a couple of award-winning shoes that I had done there. So I brought those into the portfolio, but I thought just for fun, I'm going to bring these sixth grade drawings as well. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, it shows the commitment. It shows the, the absolute core felt passion for what you did. That's right. So you, you go through high school and, and are you taking design courses or working on your design skills even before you went to Carnegie Mellon? That's right. I actually thought I was going to go into chemistry. I loved, I took six AP classes. I was an honor student in high school. Ithaca High School is a very strong program right in the, the shadow of Cornell University. Absolutely. So I had a lot of good friends and I thought I was going to go into chemistry. I thought for sure that's what I was going to do. And I had a counselor who was absolutely fantastic and said, do you like chemistry? And I said, no, 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 I, I totally don't like chemistry, but it's, <laughs> it, it's a good career. It's, a good it's stable. It'll be a good job. I'll make money. Yeah. And um, wow. she said, uh, well, what would you, what could you do all day, every day? Good and for I her. said, there's no question. I could draw all day, every day. I love doing it. Wow. And she said, that might be your job. You probably could make a, a career doing that. And, and many people were skeptics over the years, and I was even nervous, too, in the beginning. You know, am I going to be able to make a career uh, of drawing pictures? Um, and uh, I was absolutely able to do that. Well, shout I out to the camp it. counselors. I mean, yeah. people like that. <laughs> we need more of those, Mike. Yeah. I mean, if you only have one of those in your life, then you are blessed. And clearly, this was an extraordinary intervention. So, so you go to Carnegie Mellon. And you're taking industrial design a little bit ahead of the curve, right? Industrial design is a much more well understood and much more highly valued discipline than it may have been when you were matriculating as an undergrad. That's right. As you went through the program, were you thinking about other options or was, you know, working in the, the athletic apparel footwear industry really at the top of your consideration list? No, I started in the medical field, actually. So, um, and that wound up giving me a really good foundation for the biomechanics that's needed in footwear and apparel. Interesting. Yep. Yep. Uh, but the medical side of things was um, something that really spoke to me. I mentioned that chemistry, the, the science problem solving uh, was always sort of part of my background and part of my DNA. And um, so the two really fit naturally together. And I've got to believe that really did inform and elevate your ability to design world-class running shoes for professional athletes competing at the Olympic level. So remarkable sort of co-disciplinary. Yeah, uh, I think there were know. three aspects. There was, I grew up a runner and I was an athlete. I loved art and design, and then I loved the science and the biomechanics wow. behind it. Those three things came together. That's great. So 22 years at Nike. All right. 
and, you know, so many different designs and award-winning designs. And, and, you know, as, as we started off this episode, Nikiso talked about the Kukini, which was the first laser or, or laceless, laceless shoe, shoe right? that is in the Smithsonian. So not too many of us have the ability to say that one of our, um, you know, products or one of our thoughts has wound up in the Smithsonian. So congratulations. That's got to be a moment of great pride for you. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. But, you know, of all the shoes that you've designed, as, as you shared with us, right, they're all your children and you have a certain love or passion for all of them. What about another story about one of the shoes that you designed that, that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think um, each one, as you said, is special in its own right. Each one has a moment of epiphany where you're either sitting down with a, a consumer focus group and you're trying to mine insights and listen to them, or maybe you're at a museum and and you see a, a painting that you love and, and suddenly that speaks to you and, and you have a, a new idea or a new insight. Really, it can kind of come from anywhere. I think... Um, well, we had mentioned the Max Plus One earlier, and so I was on vacation in Florida, and I saw these palm trees sort of waving back and forth against a sunset, and um, I got my first project at Nike, and it was this one. And I sort of had that vision in the back of my head, and I just started sketching those palm trees, and eventually that you know became a little bit more technical, a little bit more technical, and it became what is now uh, you know the most famous shoe that I've done. Wow. So the great John Maeda, who for many years was the the president of the Rhode Island School of Design, talked about how it's important to, you know, be able to listen to the rhythm. And so you felt the rhythm of those palm trees, right? And that's what you sort of brought into your DNA and allowed you to kind of then re-express it. Very powerful. So at some point after this illustrious career, you get promoted to be Nike's global creative director for the Beijing Olympics. That's right remarkable responsibility. Can you share a little bit about what that was like? Yeah, it was really kind of an amazing uh, story for me. So I was creative director of men's athletic training and we had a global summit with a lot of leaders and I felt like we were very North America centric. And so I stood up and I gave a really impassioned speech on how we could use the global Olympics to, to really impact uh, the entire world and change ourselves and change our image for the future. And uh, I guess it made an impact because I had a new job kind of a week later. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they said, okay, uh, we had never had this role before, but we're going to make you creative director of the Olympics. Wow. Um, so head to toe, all 28 sports, you're going to need to um, solve solutions for the top tier athletes, Kobe Bryant, Maria Sharapova, Roger Federer, and for the everyday athletes, you know, somebody who's uh, doing archery or canoeing uh, or fencing. Uh, and so that's a broad responsibility. Wow. Um, and it wound up kicking off probably one of the most exciting and inspirational three and a half year journeys that I've ever been on. I can't imagine what an incredibly all-consuming journey it must have been. That's right. I probably never worked harder in my life and never felt more fun and satisfaction. It never really felt like work, even yeah. though I was kind of uh, probably 18 hour days, many yeah. days in a row. So you talked about this, um, the desire to want to think much more globally, right? And, and to think about the impact at a global scale. What, how did that translate in, into the products that you then started to think about? Were you thinking about material science and materials and, or, or the impact of that everyday athlete and then harvesting ideas from across the globe? Talk a little bit about what that innovation cycle feels like and looks like. 
Yeah, I had mentioned early in my career, I started in the medical industry. And so I was asked to go into medical theaters and talk to a lot of physicians and nurse practitioners about everything that was happening in an operation and how to try and optimize that. And so I think that gave me a really good foundation to interview, observe, talk to athletes and try and solve really specific problems for them. Um, I've never had a more specific uh, goal, which was win as many gold medals as you possibly can. Right. And so I sat down. I thought it was really important for us to uh, interview every single athlete that we could get our hands on in all 28 sports. And then I wanted to participate in all 28 sports because I feel like you learn a lot by participating in and doing it yourself. Experiential learning. I like that. Experiential learning. So I was riding horses for equestrian <laughs> and learning about, okay, what do you need when you're jumping over a seven-foot barrier? Uh, I was fencing and seeing what that would would feel like. Um, okay, I'm dragging my foot behind me now. What what abrasion resistance do we need in this shoe? So it was sort of that medical combination with these strict interviews to blend them together to, to really break everything down into what exactly do you need? How can I give these athletes a competitive advantage? How can I help them win gold medals? So there's two things I love. One is just, I can imagine the pattern recognition mm-hmm. that must have evolved as you spend time in 28 different athletic disciplines. But Nikiso, going back to the prior episode, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of the leader is immersed in their business, yeah. right? You don't delegate this, you live it. And this incredible sense of passion that you wanted to do this across every sport. You could easily have delegated to a team and said, tell me what it's like. But you chose to participate. I love that. Awesome. Yeah, and we were talking yeah. earlier, uh, you know, uh, before we got on air, just about the, the, the shoes that I know personally as a, as, a, as a bit of a shoe junkie. I mean, I'm not as big as some of the friends that I, that I have. But certainly just this notion of uh, putting on shoes that... If you, they were intended for one thing, so you, I'm, I'm putting on a Nike slip on, I go for a run, it's fantastic fit. But, you know, if you're running too fast and stop, the, the elasticity doesn't have the support. I look at the evolution of just the soles, and then I read that 75% recycled materials. So the material science piece to me and the, and the biochem and the, that biotech side too is really fascinating. And I'd love for you to touch a little bit on how that process feeds into what you were saying, which is, you're not only observing, you're experiencing, but then you also have to solve that toe drag issue by saying, well, is the material that we have right now going to be, you know, going to be sufficient? Is it really going to work to help support the athlete who needs to rebound back into step if it's fencing or whatever it happens to be, right? Can you talk a little bit about that piece of it? Yeah, I mean, I think each each one had, all 28 sports had their own unique solutions. Uh, one that sticks out in my mind was weightlifting. So at the time, um, weightlifting, they had a block of wood that they were standing on top of. So it gives you, it elevates you and it does not compress at all. So it's almost the opposite of the shoe that you're talking about, where it's really soft and really comfortable. Weightlifting shoes are like a rock. They're, they're very heavy. They're very stable. You are lifting 1,200 pounds, you know, half the weight of a Volkswagen Beetle over your head. It can't compress at all. And so, which wood, is why that sole is yay thick, right? Yeah, exactly. It's very, very thick, and it was made out of wood. 
The problem was wood is flat and it's not a very premium. It's not a very exotic material. We've come pretty far in the early 2000s. We didn't need to use a block of wood. So very quickly you say, okay, we can come up with a better solution than that. And we wound up doing a thermoplastic resin that was um, very lightweight, very strong, latticework construction that wrapped up around the heel and gave you a lot more support. That shoe is still selling today. It's it's set more world records um, in the sport of weightlifting uh, than any other. Functional, but not necessarily the most elegant shoe. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so, Nikisa, what I'd say is, I think, why don't we take a break? And when we come back, we're going to really get into Nike's push for sustainability and some of the extraordinary accomplishments and some of the things yet to come. Absolutely. Fantastic conversation so far. Uh, we'll be right back. We're back. So, uh, Mike, let's let's keep the conversation going. Let's pick it up. Yeah. So I think let's now start to talk about the extraordinary progress that Nike and Converse, a Nike brand, have made around sustainability. Sustainability in the footwear, sustainability in their headquarters, sustainability in their processes. And Sean, one of, I think, the very interesting anecdotes I'd love you to share, right? You've, you've exhibited such an incredible level of curiosity and passion to understand the needs of your users. Um, but a big part of this journey started with an epiphany coming out of a focus group. Would you share that with us, please? Yeah, sure thing. Yeah, for me, that's where it really starts. Everything starts with the center of the consumer. And so those focus groups become, you know, the lifeblood for us. And I had a focus group maybe 20 years ago now where we met with a 14-year-old boy and he did have a, that sort of epiphany moment for us. At the time, in the late 90s, we were constructing shoes typically out of about 54 parts. A lot of them were cut leather, and they were cut and sewed and stitched onto a shoe. Mm -hmm. And you had irritation points. And so this 14-year-old this was flexing his foot, and he said, each one of these is sort of biting into my foot. It's creating blisters. Why couldn't you just take your sock and glue it straight to the sole of the shoe? <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, this kid's brilliant. Like, this is amazing. <laughs> You know, we went home from the focus group. The next morning, I glued that together just to see if it would work. And of course, it's a little bit sloppy um, and it, it wasn't quite there yet. But the idea was there. It, it felt seamless. It felt invisible. It felt like everything that we had sort of dreamed about. And it, it did feel like there was a sustainability component to it. Instead of cutting and sewing and stitching and, and creating a lot of waste, you could actually digitally engineer this fly knit and create something that would give you all of the support and structure that you need in, in one sort of uh, super sock. But I just want to jump in and say, I think that's an amazing thing to hear you talk about the fact that this product that is truly revolutionary is, um, you know, the origins of it came out of you having uh, the ability to pause and to listen to a 14-year-old who's helped, who's helped drive. I mean, obviously there are multiple iterations, but that the seed and sowing the seed for then you to chase and think about and, and, the, and the teams to, to work on. I mean, it's, it says something about the, the remarkable nature of the process that you've put up and your team willing, the willingness to listen to that, that small voice. Right. And that's yeah. really powerful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I got to give a lot of credit to Nike. It's really built its foundation on innovation. And it, it came from Bill Bowerman and Phil Knight starting the company pouring rubber into a waffle iron. It's baked into the DNA. They do an incredible job of supporting innovation and new ideas. Yeah. And so 
this early kind of prototype, you could tell it was not quite working. And we kept asking some of our manufacturers, can you make it more supportive? Can you, you know, use thicker yarns and thicker gauges in the existing machines? And the machines just weren't really quite there yet. So we actually put it on hold for a little while and Nike's filled with great engineers and incredible people. And uh, someone saw this early concept and they picked it back up and they said, I think technologies have changed a little bit. And maybe now is a time for us to revisit this and go to a new supplier and see if they've got the machinery and equipment. Oh, so there was a gap. There's a hiatus between the cycle of what we actually see now? That's right. So uh, really the entire time from this early concept to the first time that it came to market was 13 years. Wow. That's so incredible. A, yeah. a very long time. And, and it, again, I think the average listener or the average consumer has no appreciation for the level of science and process and engineering and design that is involved in creating issues, right? And so we're going to unpack now this 13-year journey. But I just want to echo what we heard from Nikiso. And, and again, I'm going to reference Steve Jobs a second time. And the timing's impeccable, Nikiso, because we just spent mm-hmm. the last episode talking about Xerox making a move yeah. on HP and how hundreds, if not thousands of entrepreneurs took their tour, their pilgrimage through Xerox Park Labs and saw GUI. Mm-hmm. But it was only Steve Jobs that could somehow instantly in seconds step back and say, my God, I have seen the future yeah, yeah. of computing. Well, and that's, that's the reference to the 14-year-old. That's I mean, exactly It's the ability right. to actually listen. And, well, it's the reference to, to Sean. Yeah, and it's the yeah. reference to a skill set that is so unique and, and probably one of a handful of people on the planet that would have been sitting in that focus group and done anything other than just dismiss this as some 14-year-old kid and said, yeah, that's really interesting, yeah. but we got, we got shoes to design. And so to me, this is just such a remarkable moment, right? That, that it, you never know where inspiration will come from. And if you're willing to listen, really willing to listen, remarkable innovation happens, right? And that's why I love crowdsourcing and hackathons and just give people the chance to get their talents out there. And if you can hear something and be willing to run with it. So very powerful. Yeah, moment. fantastic stuff, Sean. Yeah. So so here you are now. You, you're, you, and, and wh- how would you define at this point, it's 20 years ago now. Yeah. Right. And of course, the, the fashion industry, the apparel industry has not been known as a particularly environmentally conscious industry. So what is the mindset of Nike 20 years ago when it comes to environmental consciousness and sustainability? Yeah, I think... Really, from an early stage, uh, Hannah Jones is the, you know, was the chief sustainability officer, and she was implemented about 20 years ago. And uh, for me, she's just such an inspirational figure and, and an incredible leader at Nike and, and a mentor to me. Hmm. She, um, she's just uh, absolutely fantastic. She was on the leading edge of this, and, and she helped transform really thousands and thousands of people just like me at, at Nike to become more sustainable and to see this as as a future opportunity. And and now, of course, hindsight being 2020, you know, I look at my kids. I've got three kids, a 17-year-old, a 15-year-old, and a 13-year-old. And, and the 17-year-old started a sustainability club, an environmental club yeah. at her high school. That's awesome. And she's extremely passionate about this. I love it. You know, and, and this younger generation, oh, it's, it's one of the most important things for them. Uh, but you're right. 20 years ago, uh, it was more on the pioneering side. I mean, there had to be no more than a handful of sustainability officers of corporations anywhere on the planet, including Germany 20 years ago. I mean, right. wow. Right. So again, leadership, not just in 
athletics, but leadership in every dimension of culture and focus. So, so let's talk now, you're, now you're working with machine manufacturers. So there's this give and take and you're investing in creating these machines that will enable you to do things that have never been done. So what role did you play and, and, you know, what were some of the key milestones where you finally said, I think, you know what, it's, it's a long journey, but I think we're starting to get to an end point where we're going to see success. Yeah, that's right. You know, and I have to give a lot of credit to the team, you know, because I think there's many times where the team supports one another and, and it's, it's one engineer who's coming with a, a slightly new insight or a slightly different uh, tact. And we were working with the machine manufacturers on, uh, okay, how can we take this sock and give it the structure that we need? Mm-hmm. And really, it was one of the engineers who had this great breakthrough of creating what we we had we now call Magwire, uh, where it's these very very thick, very strong supportive threads that we were able to digitally knit into this sock, um, and that became our lacing system. So that became kind of the traditional thing where you lock down the foot. And then that's all polyester, or is it some other kind of uh, resin fabric? That's right. It's polyester. And so this became, you know, the first samples were made out of 100% polyester, and that's one of the most recycled products that we have in the world. So it was very easy for us to pivot to 100% recycled threads. So now Flyknit is one of the most sustainable technologies on the planet. Instead of cutting and sewing all those 54 parts that we talked about and throwing away the waste, you're able to digitally knit one piece with zero waste. There's a thread about three inches long that connects one sock to the next sock. Wow. And we cut that and we recycle it and use use it again. Um, so, And it's all made from recycled threads now. So it's a, a, a great technology. That's great. And now you've got the recycled... Uh, the, the the Nike uh, or the classic, um, you know, Converse All Star. So so I know at some point you said about sixteen years in there was an opportunity to come back home, right? And you took a job as VP of Sustainability, and and I might not have the total completely yep. accurate. Yeah. At Converse. Yeah. And of course, there's been a lot of great work that you've done at Converse. So can you share a little bit about that journey and some of the products that have come out of that? That's right. So I was vice president of design and innovation at Converse. And we did these focus groups again. And you'll see this become the common thread of of talking to consumers and seeing those insights. And so I did this focus group at Bentley University right here in Boston. And uh, many of the kids were talking about sustainability and and what what are you going to do, Converse, Mm. to be more sustainable? And hey, by the way, how sustainable is the Chuck Taylor? You know, it's been around for a hundred years. Right. Uh, is it a very sustainable shoe? And and the answer was we could do better. There's no doubt about it. Over the last hundred years, we primarily were making the Chuck the same way that we did in 1908. Um, and so we saw, wow, this is a great opportunity to take some of the innovation, some of the learning, some of the technology that we have at Nike. And let's teleport that over to Converse. And so we looked at the entire thing. How can you reinvent one of the world's most famous icons? Mm -hmm. It's been in existence for 100 years. How can you make that more sustainable? And so this year we launched the Renew Chuck. It is 100% recycled PET canvas. Mm -hmm. So it feels and looks just like cotton canvas. It breathes incredibly well. It's soft and comfortable but it's made from 100% PET plastic bottles. It almost seems miraculous. Incredible. So, so can you describe a little bit about how you got there? Because it's almost inconceivable that you can take a bunch of recycled bottles and make them breathable in canvas. Like, and after I saw your presentation, I went out and bought them and you're absolutely right. 
Yeah. But the science behind that is just mind bending. It, it really is. And, and it, it was tricky. I'll be honest with you. It, it, <laughs> took, it took several years to get it. The first prototypes looked like plastic. Uh, they looked, they were very, very shiny yarns. Um, it was woven together. You could see all of the gaps. Um, and very quickly, it, it, you know, that people start to lose faith. You start to say, ah, I'm not so sure that one's going to work out. And um, in this case, I took it and, and put it under a microscope and just did, okay, a one-to-one. Okay, what's the exact difference between this new PET canvas that we're working on and a cotton canvas? And you could see that uh, natural organic cotton is uh, irregular. It, it is not an extruded thread that has the perfect diameter and the perf- perfect thickness. Um, so I said, okay, how can we get it more natural? What are we going to be able to do? So we wound up extruding the threads even thinner. We took one of those threads, chopped it up into multiple sizes. So like small, medium, large size mm. parts. And then we took two other threads and we twisted all of those yarns together. And it wound up creating a fluffier sort of yarn overall. Then we wound up brushing the canvas once that was finished to make it even more like cotton canvas. And now very, very few people can tell the difference between the two. Yeah, and I remember you put up a slide at the uh, the conference where we met where I think you had, you know, uh, people from the U.S. and China and Europe and, and the the preference for the shoe yeah. was huge, right? 95 plus percent across the board. So That's right. consumers love this product. This is They're not buying it just to feel good. They love the product. Yeah, we work with uh, multiple agencies to test products and see how they're doing in different global markets. And we were, this was the highest score that we'd ever received uh, so overall, globally, there was 96% support for wow. this product. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, some of the best shoes in the world maybe score high 80s. Um, so this um, really became a, a great sales tool for us to talk to senior leadership and people who, you know, the CFO who needed to make this investment in new machinery and new processes to, to make sure that this product got to market. And it's a very affordable product. It's like $50, $55 retail, right? That's it's right. Not, it's not an, you know, it's not like you feel like you're, you're paying a premium, right? I know I walked into a, uh, a Walla burger to buy an impossible burger and they wanted to charge me $16 <laughs> like for the, for the novelty of an impossible burger when I can buy four of them on the shelf at Whole Foods for less than that. So, you yeah. know, you're, you're being very, Nike's being very fair with the way that they're pricing this product. That's right. It's, it's actually cost neutral. Yeah. Um, and so uh, from an entire processing standpoint, there are some advantages that we get. It, it, it's waste material. We're taking recycled plastic bottles that have been thrown away that we're going to landfill. We capture those, chop those up into flake, make these threads. And if you draw a parallel between watering and, and growing and harvesting cotton and getting it over to our factories... It's actually a very similar process in some ways, and we're streamlining. It's it's in some ways getting easier for us to do this with the bottles than it is to grow the cotton. And so, um, you know, that wound up helping us. It's it's 13 cents more, and we decided that we were going to eat that cost and not pass us on to the consumer. So it's cost neutral. So when you when just to talk a little bit about that process, because I think it's fascinating. So if we're thinking about the amount of plastic production that's happening, and there's some articles now that say, that in fact, it's some, some manufacturers are making way more than they should be making rather than reversing it. Is there a model where Nike um, could 
uh, in the same way that, and just, I'm just thinking br- more broadly beyond shoes, right? Because the technology and the learning that you're getting from this process must translate to other parts of the business, right? So can you talk a little bit about what other parts of the business or apparel or things that you're doing that you feel like can really drive and maybe shift the, mo- the movement and the momentum within the fashion industry? Because, uh, you know, athletic apparel is a big part of many people's closets. That's right. Uh, so you know, just if you could talk a little bit about For that. For me, the journey goes back to that Olympics that we talked about in 2008. Uh, the uniforms that we worked on for the Beijing Olympics were also made from recycled bottles. This was mm. the first time that we had done recycled thread. Now, the goal was to win as many gold medals and to make the fastest uniforms that we could possibly make So it was an extra stipulation for us to go and build it out of 100% recycled yarns. That was that was hard. It was very challenging, but what a what a great goal. Yeah. And so that set the benchmark in 2008, and I think we've continued to improve and improve and improve over the years. And I'll talk about a product that I was just recently working on, which is the Vapor Max. It's a Nike running shoe. So love that shoe. It's in my closet. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great shoe. (laughs) Great shoe. And I don't know if you knew this, but the entire air sole is made from recycled TPU. Wow. So this is one of the most culturally iconic shoes. It's one of the best performance shoes that we have, and it's 100% recyclable. It's it's got you know flyknit upper Mm -hmm. with zero waste, made from recycled yarns. And it's a recycled air air sole unit. Incredibly comfortable too. Really good. Yeah. And yeah. creating unfair competitive advantage in, in <laughs> just amazing, right? I mean, to to be able to do this kind of good stuff for the planet and deliver one of the most high performance running shoes, if not the highest performance ever, it's just remarkable. Right, right. And again, that comes back to the foundation at, at Nike to to nurture and and covet innovation and and give the teams the support that they need in order to invent whole new processes yeah. to help the plane. And the key, so this goes back to what we talked about earlier. There's a handful of companies that have been able to create a regenerative innovation trajectory over, yep. the, over their history. And Nike would be in the top two or three of, of any company on any list that we could ever consider. Completely agree. From the time of, you know, Bowerman and uh, Knight making the, uh, you know, using the waffle iron out of their trunk and their MVP. Hey, listen, everybody needs to go watch the movie Prefontaine. It's streaming somewhere. The ultimate MVP, (laughs) right? Open up your trunk, take out a waffle iron and make somebody a pair of running shoes. So let's, but it's not just the apparel now and the the shoes. It's, it's the buildings. That's right. And so, you know, here, for those of you who are not privileged to uh, be in Boston, Converse has an extraordinary building, um, Right, right in uh, the north end of Boston, right across from the TD Center where our Celtics and Bruins play. Talk about that because that was another labor of love, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, Converse is really committing to sustainability and to recycling. And we even recycled our building. So <laughs> the, the building was dilapidated. It was falling apart. Converse went in, reinvested in downtown in the north end built this building back up. It's a wonderful place to work. It's got a lot of rich culture and heritage there, and it's bringing back vibrancy to the entire North End. All right. And then on our very last point, I know that you put up some stunning goals, which is, and, and again, you'll you'll be, you'll use the right language, but by the end of this year in North America, carbon neutral? That's right. Uh, for all of our buildings, we'll be on. Um, we'll be using green and sustainable uh, energy. And twenty twenty, all of Europe and twenty twenty one Asia. That's right. I mean, wow, is incredible. there any other company on the planet that can come close to that? Yeah, I'm not sure. Wow. I yeah. mean, this is just. I mean, the entire 
comprehensive, you know, nature of what we've talked about is just, it's so inspirational. Yep. From end to end. Yeah. So Sean, I can't tell you enough how enjoyable this was for me, um, you know, designer uh, at heart, but, but, you know, in terms of my appreciation for great design. So to talk about design, but to also talk about corporate culture and then to talk about sustainability, what a wonderful mix of disciplines that we've covered today. Thank you so much for taking time. And Nikita, so I want to, you know, give Sean a minute. So Sean has recently, after 22 years at Nike, mm-hmm. stepped into an independent role. So I want to give you a couple of minutes to talk about, you know, this new, and I can imagine, extremely exciting chapter in your life and what it is that you're hoping to accomplish. That's right. Yeah, it's been thrilling and and fun for me. So all of these lessons that I've learned over the years, all the best practices at Nike, now I'm on my own and I'm consulting for different businesses. Fantastic. Yeah, it's been been a real thrill. So, uh, you know, starting in footwear, moving to apparel, moving to retail, has now started to open up the the aperture for me. So I'm working on transportation now and healthcare and financial services and and some big, big players um, that has just opened up my learning and and education um, to a whole nother level. So it's been a thrill. And so is it, I'm sorry, sorry, go ahead, Mike. Just at the intersection of design and sustainability? Yes, yeah, sustainability. I was ask the same yeah, question. That's right. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of people that are interested in sustainability and how can you make it practical? How can you connect uh, on a tangible level? There's so many times that sustainable plans are kind of in theories and they're in a boardroom, but how do you make them practical? How do you make it tangible? How do you take that hundred year old icon and make it more sustainable? That's a big part of what I'm doing. Innovation is a big part of what I'm doing too. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how can you see those insights? How can you talk to consumers and unearth? a new insight, something that you maybe haven't seen before or in a new business. Um, and then there's sort of the design and design thinking and design strategy of, of leaning into, you know, all new product classifications. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, we, Mike and I have talked a number of different episodes just about how, if you look at the, at the U.S. in particular, North America, our involvement and engagement and innovation in ways that other countries, uh, you think about any of the European countries, roads made out of recycled plastic or uh, wind, wind vanes that are flowers and uh, are trees in, in, as part of the, 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 the cityscape, right? But they're, but they're harnessing uh, energy and, and it's going back into the grid. That level of, of innovation and the, the, the thoughtfulness and just the openness, right? It's missing, so it's really refreshing to hear that you're broadening the view beyond just the apparel side of it and thinking about whether it's transportation or buildings. Those things are much needed. I mean, it's, it's, it's really something that I think, and particularly for a city like Boston, where there's so much, uh, you know, innovation happening anyway. I, I wish we could replicate that, this, these ideas. Um, and, and, and we're looking forward to having you back to tell us what you've worked on that, that is, you know, pushing the boundaries in, in other spaces. So thank you very much, Sean. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Well, it's a thrill to be here. Thank you, guys. Such a great time. So uh, we'll be back. We're going to take a break and come back with uh, three things. Thank you. We're back and uh, absolutely fantastic episode there, Mike. Uh, but let's pivot and talk about three things. What you got for me? Yeah. And so, you know, I can't help but be struck by here's Nike. They have dominated the world of athletic apparel and footwear for decades. Mm -hmm. And while certainly they've had their, you know, ups and downs, like any corporation has, their ability to do well and do good 
as is evidenced by this incredible discussion we had with Sean, is just so inspirational. Sean's fantastic. And the stories were absolutely incredible. And I just wish more companies and more organizations could take some level of inspiration from companies like Nike or Hewlett Packard or some of the companies that we referenced in the prior episode. Mm -hmm. Now, a few things that have come up in in, uh, the news over the last few days. So um, the Saudi regime um, has been just an incredibly nefarious governmental organization. So just this week, two Saudi nationals that were basically planted by the Saudi Arabian government and their mm-hmm. intelligence organization, they were planted in Twitter yep. for one purpose, to obtain personal information, email addresses and government identification numbers and dates of birth and physical information specifically to figure out who was criticizing the Saudi regime. And they were rewarded with expensive watches and cars and cash. And they were working directly with a member of the Saudi government in the intelligence operation. Yeah, really nasty stuff. Nasty stuff. And we all know what happened to Khashoggi and and other people. So we live in a time when, you know, we, even a company like Twitter that's acted very responsibly, that is, you know, refusing to take advertising from politicians today, Um, you know, we've got to be so on guard, right? So for every great example of a Sean McDowell doing great work on behalf of Nike and the planet, Mm -hmm. you've got, you know, organizations like Twitter trying to do the right thing, but yet, you know, they can't help but be infiltrated by people that have very, very ill intent. So I just, it's just such a stunning thing to me. And you can only imagine that it's happening in every major social media organization. Yeah. That, yeah. that we know of today. Well, but at least with, with them, right? So at least yeah. they're responding by trying to, you know, put some measures in place. So there's a level of vigilance there. Uh, unlike our friends at, at, at Facebook who seem to not be getting the message. So you're absolutely right, Mike, that there's something to be said about trying to figure out which companies are, are, are doing the right thing and, and, and what signals should that send to their competitors. Absolutely. And then, you know, what's interesting is this is going to link to the second uh, of the three things. The Saudi Arabian Sovereign uh, Wealth Fund um, is the largest investor in the SoftBank One Vision Fund. And just this week, Masa Sun (laughs) came out and issued a mea culpa, but he did it in the most understated terms possible. And he said, I made a mistake. No, you make a mistake when you get in the wrong line at a grocery store. You make a mistake when you order fish in a steakhouse. This was beyond ridiculous. And and the reason that I hold SoftBank in such contempt is they have single-handedly distorted the global innovation economy with just an extraordinarily reckless approach in overvaluing investments and doing no due diligence and then doing no governance, right? And it's had a very negative effect on the capital markets. And there's then this indirect, but certainly profound effect on the way that venture capitalists and the capital markets are thinking about funding companies. Right. And it's, you know, they single-handedly are going to be responsible for slowing down the innovation economy. And I was just at a PEVC conference yesterday moderating a panel and sitting through a number of very interesting presentations. And 
it's already getting harder to get Series A deals funded, right? You're starting to see a slowdown in venture capital. Yeah. You're starting to see, uh, you know, that, that crowd mentality coming back into the funding market. So all of these great entrepreneurs working their tails off to make the world a better place. And you have this extraordinarily negative thing happening with SoftBank. And what I find even more amazing is how tone deaf Sun is. So they just wrote off a total, right? What people may not understand is both SoftBank, the parent company, and the Vision Fund were both investors and we work. They just wrote off an $8 billion loss. Now, how do you get to an $8 billion loss when you're an early investor in a company? But WeWork's valuation went from $47 billion to $7 billion. And some people are questioning whether it's got any value at all. But, you know, here I look at, again, the amount of capital they're spending. And they, they wrote off another investment in a company called WAG, which is a dog walking service. Uber's stock is at an all-time low. It's 40% off as their lockups just expired. So here's a company that has the ability to take $100 billion and do great in the world. And and they've done just the opposite. It's a very, very troubling thing to see. And so I know that they've lost a lot of confidence in their investors. And there's a lot of questions about whether they will now be able to raise the second vision fund. Um, But I, I really hope that they're unable to do that and that we get some return to normalcy. And then in the very last point, as you raised, right, Facebook, it just, it seems so remarkable to me how, how much Facebook has lost its way, right? There was a point not that long ago where Zuckerberg was on a national listening tour and there were rumors that he was thinking about running for president of this country. And even though they are under an incredible amount of scrutiny. They just had the most powerful, profitable quarter ever. And I'm just concerned that Zuckerberg is going to be very tone deaf and interpret those signals in the wrong way. Because I think he's going to say, okay, we're making money, therefore all is good, when in fact it's just the opposite, right? And his lack of willingness to listen to pretty much the entire country that's begging him to not take um, political ads that have not been vetted it just it just seems like we're moving into this very polarized environment. So for every Nike or for every HP from the old days, we've got a lot of examples of people that are listening to only one thing. It's, it's you know, the sign of uh, the cash register ka-chinging. Whether it's a sovereign government like the Saudi Arabians or whether it's companies like Facebook uh, or SoftBank. Um, I, I just, I guess it's always going to be that way, right? Human nature is complex, but... Um, I, you know, I want to leave on a good note. I think that what we heard from Nike is very empowering, and I hope that they set an example for the entire apparel and fashion industry and way beyond. So I think that's that's what I've got for this week. That's fantastic, Mike. And I'll just say one thing to to what you what you mentioned, which is that I think there's there's a level of complacency that sometimes exists where companies don't realize that what they have today may not always be there. Right. Uh, if you look at all the reports and the 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 the, the massive push that's happening with TikTok, for example, and how many com- companies here are reacting very negatively to that. You know, I, I think Zuckerberg probably at this point feels like Facebook is going to be there forever. I don't know. You know, we've, we've seen, we've seen wilder things happen, right? We have. Absolutely. So, well, we talked about, you know, HP, the iconic HP yeah. getting acquired by Xerox. I mean, nobody could have ever predicted that before. You make the wrong moves and it catches up with you. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially if public sentiment, to your point, uh, starts to shift really quickly against you. I think there's a there's a level of complacency and comfort there that 
you know, it's being taken for granted. Uh, yeah. So Facebook is built around trust. And yes. I'd say the trust factor in Facebook is at an all-time low and shrinking by the day. Well, you know, obviously you and I could keep going, uh, but uh, we're going we're gonna to call it a day. Uh, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you. This podcast is recorded at Cybersound Studios in Boston, and your support will keep paying for studio time. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash disruptive innovation. Also, give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. We'd love to hear from you and appreciate the feedback. Thank you and keep listening.